Good to see you this morning, everybody. Special welcome to you if you're here for Annika's dedication. We're going to get to that a little bit later on. We take great joy in dedicating our little ones to the Lord Jesus. But before we get there, we're going to take a look at this passage that Jimmy just read for us. And as he said, we are making our way through the book of Acts. Uh, Acts, if you're uh, just let me get you up to speed with what we know about the book of Acts so far. Um, Acts is the sequel to Luke's gospel, which tells the life of Jesus. It's the sequel which tells the life of the early church. And so Luke was a great uh, ancient historian, and he records for us uh, what has been unfolding in the the life of the early church. And we're up to Acts chapter 8. We're going to keep going till we get to the very end of the book of Acts, uh, and we should get there right before Christmas comes around. So if you're keen on tracking with us, you can uh, either make sure you're here on Sunday morning. That's the best thing you can do. As Jimmy said, join in the feast that we have here every Sunday morning. Otherwise, you can go to our website, carolinesprings.church, find all of the sermons there. And you'll also find a study guide that we put together if you want to do some further um, research on this book. We believe that God speaks to us through his word and reveals himself to us in his word. And uh, if you're here for the first time this morning, as I know a few of you are, let me just uh, remind you what the kind of big idea is for the book of Acts. From the beginning, we said that there's kind of a meta theme that, that is like the banner over the whole book. And although the book covers a lot of time and a lot of um, different locations and different situations, there's kind of a meta theme. And, and we, said it, we said it like this. It's uh, that the book of Acts is about ordinary people empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. That's what this is about. So you're going to see a whole bunch of incredible things happen in the book of Acts. And Luke records them meticulously because as a physician and a historian, he's very interested in precise details. And so he records a lot of incredible things that happen. Uh, but the, the big idea is this. The people who do these incredible things are ordinary people. In fact, at a couple of points throughout the book, we're going to see that these people do such extraordinary things that the people who see them attempted to worship them thinking they must be some kind of god or gods. But the constant refrain is, no, 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 we're just ordinary people. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. He is the hero of the book of Acts. He is the risen, reigning Lord. So that's kind of the meta theme. And then we saw there's kind of a verse at the very beginning of the book that that unlocks the rest of the book for us. And it's a verse that records something Jesus said before he ascends to the right hand of God. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What he's saying is this. My life has taken place in, in this certain time and place called Jerusalem, the surrounding area. But now that I have been killed, buried, and raised again, I'll send the Spirit to you, and the Spirit will enable you and empower you to witness to my Lordship, to witness to the gospel, the good news, that people, though they're separated from God, can be reconciled to God, can be adopted into his family. That good news is going to be spread by you, ordinary men and women. It's going to be spread from Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. He's mapped out Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. 
And we here in Caroline Springs, in Melbourne, in the very southern tip of Australia, a testament to that very thing coming about. The gospel is spread to the ends of the earth. And here this morning, we get to see the next step in that spreading. The next step as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. This morning, we get to Samaria and we get to see the power of the gospel as it hits the region of Samaria. So with that in mind, and a bit of context before we jump in, why don't we pray together? And then I'll encourage you just to grab a Bible and we'll work through this a little bit at a time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals who you are to us. And we thank you that your plan, your gospel plan, is for every man, woman, and child in every nation on earth. We thank you for your mercy and grace. Please teach us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we understand here at this church, and what we're big on, is understanding the big picture of the Bible. We want to understand the big picture narrative of the Bible. And we believe that from Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible, all the way through to the end in Revelation, there's one story. One story of God's salvation purposes for his creation. And that he's working out his story throughout human history. And he wants to take this world that is broken and make it whole again. He wants to take this world which is disconnected from him and reconcile it to himself. Not just the people, but the world itself. And this big picture story is outlined from Genesis through to the book of Revelation. I want to give you a little uh, plug, book recommendation this morning. We love this book here. As a a staff, we read through it um, earlier in the year, and it's a book called God's Big Picture, and that's exactly what it's about. It's about the big picture of God's salvation story through Scripture from beginning to end. It's written by a guy named Vaughan Roberts. He's he's an Anglican uh, vicar in in England, and uh, and we would love to get this book for you, okay? So what we're going to do is... um, if you would like to get a copy of this book and, and more fully understand the big picture of the Bible from start to finish, then um, all you need to do is fill out a Connect card on your way out. Just write down, I'd like to get a copy of God's big picture, and we'd just love to buy one for you. All right? So uh, if that's you, make sure you do that. Uh, for kids, there's a bunch of resources that, um, that are great for helping your kids understand God's big picture. There's one um, Bible called the... Uh, the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible, which does the same thing from start to finish, linking up the big story of God. And the book that we're going to give to Annika this morning as a gift uh, is this book called The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. And again, speaking of the Garden of Eden, the beginning, through to the curtain and the cross at Jesus' death, and looking forward to Jesus coming again. So there are some really good resources out there to help us take what is a massive book and distill it into the one story that runs from start to finish. So in understanding God's big picture story, um, a really good and helpful resource for us in Scripture is the book of Acts. Because throughout the book of Acts, and if you are here last week, you would have seen in Acts uh, 6 through to the beginning of Acts 8, and particularly in chapter 7, Stephen outlines this big picture for us. He really, like, he preaches one sermon and covers the whole thing, and then they kill him. All right, that's how it goes um, sometimes for preachers, hopefully not for me this morning. 
Um, you might just kill me with your blank looks, all right? Sometimes it's a worse death than being stoned. All right, so anyway, um, <laughs> I need some counseling. All right, so here's, here's what I want to say. This book enables us in some measure, along with other resources that God has provided for us through his servants, to understand his big picture story of salvation. And we're going to see it unfold a little bit more this morning. And I just think it's vital for us to understand what this big picture is, right? If God has a purpose that stretches from eternity past into eternity future, and if God wrote that down for us in a book, it's kind of important that we understand it, right? But part of the problem is, I think, we, we, we kind of grab little bits of the story here and there. And, and, and I was talking to uh, my, my brother here this morning. He said, you know, he, he uh, hasn't been to church in a long time, but he did go to church when he was a kid. And that's the story many of us have. And we kind of take snatches and little pieces of God's story. But in order for us to understand God's purposes, it would be great if all of us could understand his big story. If you have kids, you might know what this is like. I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old and um, my five-year-old India, whenever, every night I ask her, why don't you go and choose a story and we can read the story before you go to bed. And every time she will choose the most massive tome on the shelf, right? Because she wants more daddy time, less sleep time. And so she'll just drag out, like she, she has to put it in a little trolley or something and, and wheel it out. And the problem with that is that I don't read the whole thing at once. And what that means is that we get little bits of it each night. And where she has a great memory for the storyline, I'm lost. Like every night I'm like, what are we up to? What's happening? Who are the characters? What am I reading? And, um, and, and that's what it can be like with God's story. Even mature Christians can fail to grasp God's big picture purpose. And so hopefully this morning we'll see a little bit more of that unveiled for us. And if you're here for the 25 weeks that we go through the book of Acts, you're going to have a much better idea of how all of this hangs together. So, I encourage you to pick up a Bible if you've got one near you. Um, we're in Acts chapter 8, verse 4 to 40. If you don't own a Bible, then just take that one with you, okay? That's our gift to you this morning. And, um, and we encourage you to read through God's Word, uh, not just in church, but from day to day. So let me just recap. Last week we looked at, predominantly at Acts chapter 7, we saw this guy Stephen, uh, who was a servant, a deacon in the church. Um, he was a guy of great giftedness. He, had a guy, he was a guy who had this great big future ahead of him of serving the church. And then we see very early on in the, in the story, he preaches this great sermon to the religious rulers of the day. And just as they did with Jesus, they organized false testimony against this man and then, in a fit of rage, took him out of the temple and stoned him to death. But before they could do that, he outlined this beautiful, big-picture story of how God has been working throughout the history of Israel, indeed, throughout the history of the universe, to bring about his salvation purposes. And part of the picture that he painted for these people, these Israelites, who thought that God was only interested in them, in their race, in their people. Part of the picture that he paints is this global vision that God had actually initiated from the beginning that Jesus laid the foundation for and then upon which the church is slowly building. And that is this global vision where people of every tribe and nation and tongue 
people who kind of look like you guys here this morning know the good news of the gospel and know God as your father. And so he outlines this beautiful vision and then he gets killed and on that foundation, this guy Philip is going to take up the cause. We saw that even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of this guy, this innocent man, Stephen, being murdered in cold blood, in the light of day, even in the midst of that tragedy, God takes that and uses it for the good of his people. And so in, in Acts 8 verse 1, you want to just bring that up, we see what happens after he's murdered. Luke says, Saul, we'll get to him next week, Saul approved of their killing. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is the way that Jesus' vision for the gospel spreading throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, this is the way it's going to come about. God is going to take something broken and make it beautiful. He's going to take something that's tragic and make it triumphant. This is how the gospel is going to spread. There's this ancient phrase that says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Throughout the last 2,000 years, where the church has been persecuted most, it's grown most. doesn't make any sense. Unless it's true. So the church scatters and the church grows. And Philip is one of these believers who is scattered. And as he is scattered, he goes preaching the good news. He's also known as Philip the Evangelist. An evangelist is just someone who shares the good news. And we see here that Philip takes that good news to Samaria. This is a region that populated by people who are hated by people in, in, in Jerusalem. Think like, it's like Melbourne and Sydney, right? It's, just got, it's got that thing happening, except people don't just make memes about each other. They actually kill each other, right? It's, it's a little bit more like Israel and Palestine. They've got history that goes back centuries. They hate one another. They distrust one another. The people in Israel see themselves as pure Jews. They see the people in Samaria as, as people who, have, who have, um, have turned their back on God, who have intermarried with people of other religions. They have assimilated other foreign gods into the, the kind of, into the, um, the worship of the one true God. And so they don't trust each other. They don't like each other. They fought wars against each other. And now the good news is landing in Samaria. And we're going to see how the good news triumphs in Samaria. And then we're going to see how it gets extended even to an Ethiopian, an African, someone from a different continent. We're going to see how the gospel is going to, through this evangelization of this African man, likely skip over into the continent of Africa and thereby on its way to Caroline Springs. So, Let's read a little bit and we'll chat a little bit and see what God has for us, all right? So in Acts chapter 8, verse 4 to 8, it says this. Those who had been scattered preached. Mark that. They're scattered because someone's just been murdered. They're being dragged off to prison. Families are being torn apart. People are being killed on account of being Christians who are called to preach the good news. And their response is not to go underground, is not to shut up, but is to preach. These are the Christians who live this day 
in places like North Korea who are threatened with prison and death and yet keep preaching the good news. This is the Christians behind the Iron Curtain last century in, in, in the Soviet bloc. Those who preached the good news, who were dragged off to prison, who were killed for their faith and kept preaching. The, seed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Kind of makes you feel a little uncomfortable, right? Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So we're going to see here, we just saw in that little passage, a continuation of what's happened from the ministry of Jesus into the early church. That is, where Christians do ministry, they have a ministry of words and works. Words and works, always together. He preaches, that is, he has words, he he says words about who Jesus is and what he's done and what the gospel is about and why it's good news. And he does works, just like Stephen before him, the apostles before him, and Jesus before him and them. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. Amazing demonstrations of God's power. Remember, there's nothing special about Philip. He's just a dude who loves Jesus and is willing to be used by him. And yet, he's an ordinary man, empowered by the Spirit, to witness to the Lord Jesus, and crazy stuff happens. He preaches and people become Christians. He prays for them to be healed, and cripples walk. Now, for some of you who have my cultural background, right, secular, Western, post-enlightenment, right, this is hard for us to believe. Talk to anyone here who has come from, we've got many brothers and sisters here from Sudan, Talk to people who have come from areas of the world that haven't been made cynical by post-enlightenment secular education. And they will tell you stories of this very thing happening this very day. Evil spirits. Paralytics being healed. And yes, we see little, little glimpses of this in our church. We've seen people who have had cancer be prayed for and be healed. We've also seen people who've had cancer and died. But the point is that wherever the gospel goes, it is accompanied by words and works. This is true for Jesus and all of his followers throughout the history of the early church. You'll see this continue into the Apostle Paul's ministry and beyond. And I want to say that that is still true today. It's true to varying degrees. But wherever the ministry of the church is, like this church in Caroline Springs, it should be accompanied by ministry of word and ministry of works. Now let's keep reading. Verse 9 to 11 says this. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him 
because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. So, here's where words and works can go wrong. Yes, Christians have had, always had, and continue to have a a ministry of words and of works. And God uses his word and his works to authenticate the ministry of the church. To to put his stamp on it and say, this is the real deal. However, there has always been and continues to be those who perform great words and works who are not of God, who are not empowered by the Spirit, who are actually empowered by someone altogether different. And so this is where the church, this is where God's people, followers of Jesus, need to be really discerning discerning. The Bible talks about the gift of discernment, which helps us determine what is of God and what is of Satan, what is good and what is evil. And this is so important because great words and great works aren't limited to God and his people. Satan is capable of great words and great works. Satan is capable of great miracles. In fact, I would venture to say that Satan is probably capable of every miracle that God is apart from the miracle of salvation. And so we see here a man who is empowered not of the Holy Spirit, but of evil spirits, Simon the sorcerer, who's doing great things and the people are awed by him and they are just overwhelmed by his power and so they call him the divine power known as the great power. Imagine having that on your business card, right? Simon, magician, a.k.a. the great power, right? That's... And so, of course, he's boasting, right? Who wouldn't if that's what you were known as? But we need to be really careful. I mean, if words and works are are continuing today, as I say they are, then God's people, just like they were in this time, are prone to be deceived, Don't have this sort of chronological snobbery that, well, 2,000 years ago people were kind of dumb, but we're better than that now. No, Christians today are deceived all of the time by people claiming to be this great power or even claiming to have God's great power working in them. And we were warned about this, all right? So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says that even Satan, if you want to pull that one up, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, even Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Using a Greek word there for the early Greek form of theater where you would have these different masks to play different characters, also known as hypocrites. Those actors were known as hypocrites because they could play different roles, all right? That's what he says. Satan is like, Satan is a hypocrite. He is a great actor. He can masquerade as an angel of light. So be on your guard, he says. Don't just take whatever comes to you without discerning it. You know of whole religions that are founded on some dude being told by an angel that God's got a new thing going on there. Well, be careful, Paul says, because it could be Satan. Jesus himself, Matthew 24, 24, he said this, and and this is exactly what's happening. He said, false messiahs, false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive. If possible, even the elect, even Christians are going to be deceived, he says, by these false 
prophets, false messiahs. They'll be able to do great signs, great wonders. You're going to think, wow, this is amazing. But don't be deceived. And Paul says again in 2 Thessalonians, he talks about this uh, lawless one, this antichrist. He says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. This is just Satan's MO. This is how he works. This is his game. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so there he gives us the key. The key that will save us from being deceived. The key that will save us from being deceived and therefore from perishing. He says you need to love the truth to be saved. What is the truth? It's the truth that we love to tell in this church. It's the truth of the good news of the gospel revealed to us in God's word. You can trust that what is written here is true. It doesn't need to come with great signs and wonders. The guy at the front doesn't need to have a huge, big voice. And you don't need smoke machines and lights. And you don't need people falling down in the pews. And you don't need the right kind of crescendo in the music to make you believe it's all true. You don't need to see people who couldn't walk start to walk. You don't need any of that because the truth is always true. This is unchanging truth. And so Paul says, if you love the truth, you won't be led astray by smoke and mirrors. You won't be led astray by demons masquerading as angels. And so, this is what happens. You've got Philip, empowered by the Spirit, You've got Simon, empowered by demonic spirits, and here's how it shakes out. Verse 14 to 17 says this, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, and you need to hear that with, what? Like, really? Jesus said this would happen, but we kind of doubted it, right? Samaria, it's like Sydney becoming good people, right? So, it's a joke, um, When they heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John there, right? Two big, big guys, big wigs in the early church, apostles, two best friends of Jesus in his sort of inner circle, Peter and John. They send them down there to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. This is the people who have accepted the good news, the the gospel that uh, that, uh, Philip has preached. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's what's happened. Samaria doesn't know Jesus, don't know the gospel. Stephen is killed, the church is scattered, Philip heads out to Samaria, preaches the good news. People come to faith. People who formerly worshipped this divine power that Simon had became Christians, did away with their New Age crystals and magic books, received the good news of the gospel. And then when the apostles hear about it, they go down there 
And though these people have been baptized, they pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we just need to work out a little bit of a naughty theological thing. And if you're not a Christian here this morning or you're not a nerd like I am, apologies. But it's just something important that we need to work out. Because some churches, some whole denominations have taken this passage and have made it normative for the Christian church. Remember, right back at the beginning, we said, you need to figure out in Acts what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. What is history that... Luke is just recording for our benefit, description, and what is prescription, that is what we should be doing today as Christians. And it's it's not always 100% clear which is which, and there are forms of both throughout the book. Now here, I want to say this little occurrence where people become Christians and are baptized but don't receive the Spirit until the apostles pray for them, this is not normative. This is not prescriptive. This is anomalous, all right? Some churches, some denominations will teach you that when you become a Christian, you get baptized, and then you need a second blessing, is what it's called. You get baptized, you're a Christian, but then you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, all right? And that normally happens when a a pastor prays for you, and it's then that you're filled with the Spirit, and you you speak in tongues, and that's the second blessing. And I want to say to you this morning that that is not normative for the Christian church. I spoke with one of you last week and you had this, this terrible and tragic and heart-wrenching experience in a church that taught that doctrine and the experience of this woman in our church was that she just didn't get baptized in the Holy Spirit when they prayed for her. And they cranked up the music a bit louder and it still didn't happen and they kept going with the music until it was pumping and it still didn't happen. And so, of course, she feels, well, maybe I'm not saved. And it's a lie. When you become a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are filled with the Spirit. And yes, that's an ongoing thing. You, we, we say here constantly, you should be praying, God, fill me with your Spirit, because as broken people, we leak, right? And so you need to be praying for a continually filling with the Spirit. But that initial baptism of the Spirit happens when you first claim the name of the Lord Jesus. You don't need an extra thing. You don't need a priest to pray for. You don't need a pastor to pray for. You don't need the right kind of music. You don't need even to speak in tongues as evidence of that, all of that. No. Scriptures are very clear about this. Now, here's the thing. In the book of Acts, there is no one common method that people get the Holy Spirit. Right? There's just different ways that it happens throughout the book. And that's just God's business. He's doing things different ways, different times. It's fine. You can't just take one instance and make it normative for the rest of human history. For example, if you want to take one, then you could take the earlier one in Acts chapter 2. In verse 38, Peter says this. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All in one tense. Not past, present, future. Not now and maybe one day. Not now and then if you have the right person pray for you. Just repent, believe, be forgiven, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other places in Acts, it'll happen in different ways. Now, why is it happening like this in this instance? Let me tell you. It comes much more clear when we understand the historical uh, context. Why is God, who is running the whole show, 
from start to finish, and particularly in this passage we're looking at today, the Holy Spirit is just moving the pieces on the board so clearly, right? Why has he arranged it like this? He's arranged it like this because the gospel has gone to Samaria. And that's an issue for people in Jerusalem. Really? Like, we know that God is going to end up saving people in Caroline Springs, but Samaria, those guys, those inbreds, and so it would be very, very easy right now, this is, a ve- this is a critical point in church history, it would be very easy for the, f- the followers of Jesus in Samaria to start their own thing, for the church to be split from the beginning. And remember Jesus' prayer before he dies in John chapter 17, he wants the church united. He doesn't want Jerusalem church and Samaria church. He wants a united church. And so the way he arranges things here is for these new believers in Samaria to wait to be filled by the Spirit until the apostles come down from Jerusalem. And when they pray for these believers, they're filled with the Spirit. And that is God's stamp that, yes, I'm doing this here. This is not a joke. These people aren't pretending. Philip wasn't wrong. This is exactly what I'm doing. Samaria is saved. Here's my stamp of authority. And it comes through the apostles. Whenever, in the book of Acts, someone is prayed for and filled by the Spirit, it's done by the apostles. That's significant. It's God putting a stamp on things. You'll notice, whenever the the, uh, gospel goes to a new territory, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, whenever it goes to a new territory, this kind of thing happens. So the fact that it's gone to a new area, to a new people group, and that people are hated by the first people group, All of that requires God's special stamp of authority. That's why it happens this way. It's not normative for the rest of human history. So no, you don't need a second blessing because the first blessing is sufficient. So, let's skip over now to this little story that Luke records for us. Again, it's Philip who is the evangelist. It's Philip who has gone out proclaiming the good news, and it's from verse 26 to 40. You want to turn there to verse 26 to 40, and we get get this great little story of the first African convert to Christianity. So first of all, let's say a couple of words about Philip. So Philip is an ordinary man empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. We first saw him back in chapter 6, remember, where seven men who are full of the Spirit were given the office of deacon, of servant. They were given the responsibility to make sure all of the people's needs were met. Remember, there were some widows who were Greek-speaking Jews who were kind of getting into a bit of a fight with the the widows who were were, uh, uh, Hebrew-speaking Jews. And and it was because they were missing out on the food and they were getting all the food. And it was like, the apostles were like, we can't. Seriously, we can't take care of this. We've got, the church has just grown by 15,000 people. We're a little bit busy, all right? And they said, we need to preach and we need to pray. So let's get seven guys who are full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, thought of highly, and they can take care of this. And one of those guys is Stephen. He's now dead. The other one, one of the others was Philip. Both of those guys, in fact, all of those seven guys were Hellenists. That is, they were Greek-speaking Jews. Right, so they saw these people, Greek-speaking Jews, 
are being overlooked. Let's get some Greek-speaking Jews to take care of them. So that's what they do. And Philip's one of those guys, and even though his main task in the church is to help food get distributed, he doesn't say, well, that's my job, the preaching, that's, that's for the paid guys, that's for the apostles. That's for... No, he says, I'm going to serve here, and all Christians are, are called to, to preach the gospel, so I'm going to do that too. It's not the guy up front who speaks and the rest of the people serve coffee. No, we all have a role of servant, serving in the church, and we are all called to preach the good news of the gospel. And now Philip is called to evangelism, sharing the good news, like all people in all of church history, but he's also got the gift of evangelism. This is, this is the people you might know who just, they just can't shut up about Jesus, right? Where in every situation, they're always talking about Jesus. And if they do it right, people like them for it and aren't annoyed by them, okay? So gifted people, gifted at communicating the good news of Jesus to people who don't know him. And out of love for them, they want to share this great news. It's like the person who discovers a cure for cancer and just can't keep it to themselves. Why would they? And so he is Philip the Evangelist. That's how he's known in church history, one of these gifted evangelists. And the thing about Philip is he is constantly listening to God's voice. He's constantly listening to what God wants him to to do. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, you might know someone like this. You might know some people in our church like this. They're just, they're just tuned in, right? It seems like they've, they've just found the right wavelength for God's voice. And they may not hear him audibly. Very few people do. But they're so tuned into his word. They know him so well and so tuned into the needs of the people around them that they're just constantly doing what he says. They listen for God's voice and they obey it. These are my favorite Christians, by the way. Just, just simple, trust and obey, trust and obey, right? It's an old hymn some of you might know. Trust God, obey him. And Philip's one of those guys, right? He's just so tuned into God's voice. You're going to see in verse 26 and verse 29, he hears what God says to him. We don't know if it's an audible thing or if it's just a, a prompting, a conviction, but he hears and he obeys. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard an audible voice from God. I have had visions at rare times, but I have had very strong promptings from God in my life. Sometimes it's a long-term sort of directive, right, I think I should be doing this. That's what landed me and my family in Caroline Spring. We feel convicted that this is what we should do. Sometimes it's like all in the moment, conviction, you should do this. And the thing about me is that I'm not Philip. I don't always hear and obey. I remember, I can see the point right now, down Caroline Springs Boulevard, my first year here, so like four years ago, and I was walking on my way to church. I picked up bread for communion. I'm walking up here, and I see a girl sitting, I don't know, she's 18, 19. She's sitting on the curb, and she's crying. And, like, all of a sudden, I get this massive conviction. Like, it's almost audible. Massive conviction. Go and talk to her about Jesus. And so I saw her. 
I heard the voice, got the conviction, and kept walking to church because I've got important things to do, right? Somebody's got to roll out the tablecloth, all right? So, and, and so I fail. I fail not to hear God's voice, but to obey. And to this day, I regret that. What if I was the one that God had in mind to share the good news of the gospel with her? What if that was the key that would unlock some of the brokenness in her life? What if, what if, what if? Philip hears God's voice and obeys God's voice. The Holy Spirit, right throughout the book of Acts, and particularly here in this passage that we're looking at, is moving all things, pulling the strings so that people would come to know Jesus. So this is what happens. Verse 30 to 31. Actually, let's back it up. Let's go from verse um, 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, right? Further, further, further away from Jerusalem. The good news, spreading, spreading, spreading. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch. Right? Historical context, a eunuch is someone who has had his manhood either crushed or cut off. And... Um, Rulers of ancient nations would do that so that these men could be trusted in the court, right? If he keeps that stuff, men can't be trusted, right? People for all of human history have known that truth. Uh, you can laugh, it's okay, we can talk about this. Um, so they made some men eunuchs so they could trust them in their court. The king, you know, you want a servant for the queen, you make sure he's been crushed or cut. All right, so that's this dude. He's, he's an Ethiopian. He's from uh, Africa, and uh, he's, he's had that done to him, all right? Probably as a boy, probably after being enslaved as a result of some war or something. We don't know exactly, but that was a, a pattern in, in history. So, back up. He started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone into Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in the chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Go to that girl on the curb and share the good news with her. Go to that chariot and stay near it. Philip hears, Philip, unlike me, obeys. Verse 30 to 31, then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So this is a guy from Africa, not a Jew by birth, but someone who is probably a God-fearing man. He, he, he kind of vaguely knows about this God of the Old Testament, this, this, this God um, revealed in the Scriptures, and he has some rough knowledge of who he is. So that's why he's gone up to Jerusalem to worship 
But as he reads the book of Isaiah, and specifically here, verse, uh, chapter 52 and 53, he doesn't get it. He doesn't fully understand it. And many of you can relate to this, right? I can relate to this. You're, you're somewhere deep in Deuteronomy and you read something, you're like, I have no idea what this is about. That's okay, because God has so ordered the world that he puts his people in community so that they can figure these things out together. God just put this, put this guy in community. It's a community of two, but it's a community nonetheless. And Philip comes alongside him. He's invited up to this eunuch who's reading the scriptures, chapter 52 and 53 of Isaiah. And he says to him, do you get it? And the guy says, how can I? How can I? How can I unless someone explains it to me? And this is the very situation that we find ourselves in today as Christians. This is the exact situation that Paul describes in Romans chapter 10, all right? This is what he says in Romans 10. And this is, this is something we must understand if we want to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. That's what Philip's right about to do for this guy. That's what we're called to do. And this is what Paul says. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what happens when someone believes the gospel. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone, anyone, hear this this morning, you might think that I'm, I'm too far gone for God to love me. The people here, they're all good people, right? Good church people. They wear knitted jumpers, right? I'm, I'm, got, I'm, I'm beyond God's reach. I've, I've still got a hangover from last night, and this is the first time in church for years, right? Anyone, what does he mean there? Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So you might be experiencing shame now, that makes you feel like you're beyond God's reach. Paul says no. In fact, Paul, is, we're going to see next week in chapter 9, Paul was killing, murdering women and children who were Christians. God saved him, and now he's saying this stuff. He knows that those who believe in the Lord Jesus aren't put to shame. Anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For, because, therefore... There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. No difference between Jerusalem Christians and Sumerians. No difference between Aussies and Sudanese. There is no difference. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Now here's the thing. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We got that, verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Right? So here's the picture. God has this plan of salvation from eternity past to eternity future, and he's unrolling it here in the book of Acts. And people who are formerly distant and disconnected from God are now being reconciled to him and made his children. 
And people in Caroline Springs are being reconciled to God from every tribe and nation and tongue. They're hearing the good news. They're confessing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. They're believing in the heart that God raised him from the dead. They believe that he is ruling and reigning over all things and therefore he is worthy of their worship. He is worthy of them making all of life all about him. And so this great plan to save all people is in place and it's open to everyone irrespective of who you are and where you've come from and what you've done. But how will people know if they're not told? If this hinges on God working in them as they receive and hear the good news, then how is that going to happen if no one's there to deliver it? From the beginning up until now, God has always worked in tandem, his spirit and his word working together to bring people to faith. God's spirit is willing that people would come and believe in him and he needs us. He works through us to deliver the news. So, how are they going to know unless someone preaches and how are they going to preach unless someone's sent? That's exactly what's happened. Philip's been sent There's a man there who's willing to hear, and he says that very thing, how will I know unless someone speaks? How will I know if someone, unless someone explains? And so he invites him in, and friends, there are people all over your life, in your kid's kindergarten and school and at your workplace and at your high school and in your street. There are people all over the place who are Ethiopian eunuchs, who are open to hearing about the good news that you know, but are saying to you, if they could, how am I going to know unless you explain it to me? So we don't go around bashing people with the message. No, we pursue people in relationships so that we can share with them the best news that we've ever heard. So he invites him in. And the passage that he was reading is the passage from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb before the shearer is silent so he did not open his mouth in his humiliation he was deprived of justice who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth if you read chapter 52 and 53 of Isaiah written 600 years before Jesus was born it is a perfect description and prophecy of what happened to Jesus if you're here and you're doubting whether any of this can be true then take a document verifiably from 600 years before Jesus and see how it perfectly explains what happened to Jesus, and maybe it'll encourage you to look a little further. So the Jews in Israel at this time, the God-fearing Ethiopian eunuch who went to church and worshipped and heard this stuff, and Jews to this day do cannot make sense of this passage we just read, chapter 52 and 53 of Isaiah. It talks of a suffering servant who will save his people, who will lay down his life for his people, an innocent man who, ha- who is pierced and broken for the sins of the people, and they don't get it. And then this small group of Christians who believe in the risen Lord Jesus understand the gospel, and suddenly they hold the key to unlock this mystery. 
and Philip unlocks the mystery of Isaiah 52 and 53 for the Ethiopian eunuch. Then Philip, verse 35, began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. He must have figured out what this guy was reading and gone, awesome, there couldn't be a better passage. And of course, the Spirit of God has just arranged it that way so that it's very clear to the eunuch, this is what God is all about. This is what he's done through Jesus. And so the gospel unlocks the key to the Old Testament. It unlocks the key to prophecies about the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And the result is belief and baptism. Let's read the rest of the passage. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azostus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea, right? The gospel just keeps going, eventually to Caroline Springs. The Ethiopian believes and is baptized. He doesn't need Philip or the apostles to pray for him to have a second blessing. No, he's baptized. He's a believer. Philip just gets plucked out of the air, right? No way of explaining this other than it's just a miracle that God does, right? Just says, Philip, no longer needed here. He's got everything he needs, right? He's got the scriptures. He knows the gospel. He's been baptized. You're out of here. He's like, oh, well, I guess he just disappeared into thin air. God does this kind of thing, I guess, and goes on rejoicing. It's said by some in church history that he went on to spread the gospel to North Africa. I'm not sure about that. Luke just says, he goes on rejoicing and leaves the story there. But Philip is taken by the Spirit to the next place and the next place and the next place, preaching the good news until it comes to Caroline Springs. So God's salvation story continues to unfold before our eyes in the book of Acts. And we get to play a part in this. This is not some ancient history disconnected from our life today. There is absolute continuation of God's plan from this point until today. And so we believe as a church, our mission is to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. That is, we want to help Christians make all of life all about Jesus because that's what being a Christian is about. It's not about turning up on Sunday morning only. It's not about wearing knitted jumpers and being nice. It's about making all of life all about Jesus because he is our king. And we also want to be people helping people who don't yet know Jesus to know him, to know the good news, to know that they can be reconciled to God so that there's no more shame. Just like Philip and the Ethiopian, we want to come alongside them. We want to get in the chariot with someone and share with them what Jesus is all about. So our role is the same as Philip's role. We get to do it in a comfy context where it's cold and rainy outside and there's heated floors, right? And a roof that, well, no longer leaks. But our mission is the same. 
Our mission is the same as our brothers and sisters in areas of the world where they are still being murdered for being Christians. Christians are the most persecuted people group in the world. There is no other people group that you can name that is more persecuted. And yet people continue to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus, to share the gospel with others, because they believe that it's true and that it is the means by which God reconciles us to himself. So we're not here playing games. There are better things to do on Sunday morning. We're here because we stand in 2,000 years of history of people who are called to make all of life all about Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to pray that that's exactly what we do, that we wouldn't be like me those years ago, ignoring the voice of God and the conviction of God, ignoring people who need to hear the good news, but instead to pursue them in love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are convicted that this is our purpose in life, that this is not some mission statement for an organization, that this is actually the mission that you've given each one of us who call ourselves Christians that we want to be people, helping people make all of life all about Jesus, people sharing the good news that reconciles us to you. So please help us do that. We want to do that in a corporate sense when we gather. We want to do it through different means and programs and whatever else. But we want, we want to be doing this on the cold face. We want to be doing this in our schools. We want to be doing this in our homes. We want to be doing this in our workplaces. We want to be people with beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So, Father, we believe that there are many, many, many people in this city who you have drawn to yourself. People who are like the Ethiopian, just waiting for someone to explain to them how this all works. So, please... Give us the privilege of being that person for them. Help us to do this. Give us the words, give us the courage, give us the conviction. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.